Okay, so it's coming up to six o'clock and I may as well start. <coughs> um, just a little intro about what I do. I'm the founder and creator of an immersive travel blog and I have my own creative studio as well. And I've been working in VR for the last few years. And prior to that, I've done all sorts of things. I don't even know where to start. Just, yeah, check out my profile. And shall I hand over to you, Sophia? Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, sure. Um, so my name's Sophia and I'm an, a trainer and educator in different practices that we need to operate across digital divides and also to have good conversations in small groups. And I'm also a serial social entrepreneur, so I've prototyped different ideas and I've won some awards and I'm constantly prototyping the next idea, um, basically to help humans get on in the changing spaces that we work in and we live in. And you kind of work on and offline, which I think is really interesting, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later, actually. So this isn't the first podcast interview I've done with you, is it, Sophia? That's true. That's true. We did one a, a few years back and you kindly interviewed me about uh, just futurist ideas that I had and we chatted while we <laughs> during the time that you were actually, your lovely friend, can, can, um, Calman. Uh, Calman, that's right, was doing the hair and makeup. And it was such an empowering experience, I remember, because you invited me to talk about things that had influenced my thinking about the future. And, and we thought about what setting would bring that out. And it turned out that one of the things was the time of the beat poets and the beat, the artists around that time in the 50s in, in America. And I chatted about the influence of the beats on me and my thinking about um, where our civilization is and um, and how the beats had, in a way, been, been the poets that had been able to articulate the unseen as the American dream was being challenged through the rise of advertising and um, the Madison Avenue and how they pointed to that. And they did it in their very kind of outlier, um, renegade way and um, were often misunderstood as a result. But I found them very inspiring because they asked the ex kind of existential questions that were important of that time. And, you know, they pointed to the direction that we actually have ended up going in. Um, we have, you know, we still have such a strong role of advertising business models and we're a little bit trapped in that in our society. Um, Can I just uh, interrupt for one second? And because the, the whole thing I was sort of doing with you and Calumman at that point, we were sort of transforming you uh, into like a vintage look from the beats. And then we photographed you as well while you spoke about this. And you said you mentioned that the books were from uh, you. Re you read them when you were like sixteen or seventeen, but then you went on a journey. You went on the journey to of the books, didn't you? Like physically. That's right, because I got very interested in the power of myth and stories, and um, I had picked up on the road, which was this, you know. Um, 
almost cult status book from Jack Kerouac in the 50s. And the first time I picked it up, I really couldn't understand it. I, could, I, didn't, I couldn't really get on with it. It was 50s American slang and I just put it down. And just around age 20, picked it up and I just called it up. And um, then later I ended up going to um, San Francisco and New York on the trail of the, the beats and uh, I moved around where they had sat in cafes and 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 when we did my makeup um, and we ended up going to that 50s cafe in London it was it, it, I mean the experience was extraordinary to, to be dressed up into this vintage <laughs> yeah and reading that book in fact it, I was reading the poem Howl I don't know how many people might be familiar with Howl it was it was a poem that was written by um, one of the beat poets that ended up leading to um, change in the Second Amendment because it was considered um, unacceptable, the language they wanted to censor it. And so this was challenged. And there was a bookshop in San Francisco called the City Lit Bookstore, which famously took a stance and defended the right to that artistic language. And they won. So that and that that poem, Howell, was a clarity to artists that were burning out all over the place and um yeah i it started like i have seen the best minds of my generation burnt out um and it continues um and it, it was a very long poem so and they made a film of it too uh yeah so all of that it, it just that poetry really spoke to me and but didn't you see the writer like one of the writers in the cafe well like, how strange here's <laughs> a letter of how not to be. I was sitting in the cafe and I saw Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, who was the owner of that famous City Lit bookstore. Um, so he was sitting in a cafe where the Beats often used to hang out. And I spoke to a lady on the table next to me. I said, is that Lawrence Ferlinghetti? She said, yes, 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 go on, go over and say hi, because she could tell I, was, I wanted to. But I hesitated. And then I kind of mustered up the courage to go and say hi. And um, he'd gone. <laughs> the best of us but yeah. it was uh I, I mean that's just I think that's so funny though <laughs> yeah yeah and I ended up actually writing a poem that day after we said goodbye in the cafe uh I went and I wrote a poem that I felt brought out that part of me that was brought to life by this poetry and I, I to this day I really do like that poem that I wrote. <laughs> I don't have it with me, so <laughs> um, we can post it later. So, <clears throat> so you're kind of reading that, uh, you know, again in your sort of twenties, and we we sort of met then back at Imperial, and uh, while we were both kind of very heavily invo involved, it was called Third World First uh, Charity, so we're part of the society, and obviously we don't use those terms anymore because it's not politically correct. So it's now called People and Planet. So we've both been quite, very, you know, very involved in social um, uh, discourse, really. Or, you know, I, I don't know if charity is the right word, but uh, mm. sort of world issues. How is that, how is that presented in, in your conflict work and also in, in the work around ownership as well and shared ownership? Because I know you went over to Bangladesh as well, didn't you? Yes, yes. So uh, this is for me about solving problems that affect people on the ground that sometimes can be presented as the third way that Tony Blair 
experimented with that and and Gordon Brown experimented with that and they had lots of good intentions but for example one of the things they came up with were these uh, public-private partnerships that could, that ended up being so complicated. I remember that there was one that they published that people were saying, you know, you needed a PhD to understand it. And they become documents that don't really serve the purpose. Whereas I was very interested in examples like the work of Muhammad Yunus, who had effectively changed Bangladesh the results on the ground were absolutely beyond um, beyond uh, you know any reports you could see them when you landed Can I just in say so Mohammed Yunus uh, he's a, a social economist would you say and he's, no, he's a Nobel Prize winner isn't he as well? yeah he started yeah. off being an economist in the 70s he taught economics in the university and he came out onto the streets and walked around and realized that his economics didn't actually help people on the ground and that began his whole endeavor um, which scaled so this was a social enterprise that, unlike so many around the world, had scaled. And when I looked at it, you could see that that one of the reasons for the, its success is that it followed, um, although he didn't say this, it followed principles of living systems. So, for example, they ironed out conflicts early on and they solved those conflicts at a local level each time. And so when they scaled, they weren't multiplying conflicts. They grew their solutions organically and they scaled at the right moment. And they, they kept coming back to why were they doing this? So if they ever had a challenge, they would come back to why are we doing this? They were so clear in their core purpose. Their purpose was basically to help the poorest of the poor. So if there's only any doubt, they would come back to that and that would guide them. So they made smart decisions all along. For example, in many microcredit organizations, if somebody who had taken out uh, a loan died, that loan would be passed on to the other members of the family. But it, in Grameen, they reckoned with this and they said, well, how is that solving poverty? Because you're going to have people less able to resolve that. Than so, so basically, he set up a microfinance bank, but much more um, sort of manageable across for the whole family, would you say? Yes, all the way through the, the incentives, the decisions that were made, um, when you look at them, they look as I, they look like they have been grown homegrown, but also they they have been integrated across distance as well so that um, there's it's it's like the best of local and global it, that's been integrated into that organization. And, and up till that point, places like Bangladesh would be reliant on, or people would be reliant on loans um, with high interest, which they couldn't yeah. really afford. Or if they had a bad crop that year, they, then they couldn't, you know, repay it. And it, would, it led to suicides and all sorts of problems, didn't it? Yes, they didn't own their own tools for production. So it's like, it's like taking the Marxist idea of, you know, owning your tools for production, but applying it in a way that worked within our capitalism's cap capitalist systems so they were able to um they they he created a bank that actually became more stable than many of the banks that collapsed in um the 2008 financial crisis um so he worked out that people in this situation had you know a 97 percent payback rate so there was good so there was substantial reason reasons to back 
these people um and the success was on all levels so there was you know financial success social success organizational success so it became an example a real beacon for social enterprise and for example in bangladesh um it bangladesh became one of the only countries that were on its way to meet the millennium development goals of reducing poverty by half when I was there in 2008. Um, so it, re it really was an outstanding organization and I, I, I was interested in why and what were the reasons underneath it. So, uh, and th so these ideas about resolving the conflicts locally and ensuring that they were resolved before scaling um, and keep and coming back to the, to, you know, questioning what is the purpose uh, regularly and and making that to be a, a, the, um, an act that was carried out by everybody, not just top management, were. And this wasn't a, this wasn't a, like a charity model, though. This is an entrepreneurial model. Yes, 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 it was. Um, yes, the bank Grameen exactly was about microfinance and micro enterprise and involving um, previously excluded demographics. You know, women mm. essentially. Um, but they also, in you know, worked with the men to enable those solutions to be received within families in harmonious ways. So they just were one step ahead. You know, they were they were thinking the right way all along, and I was curious as to why. <laughs> yeah, and then so this sort of was it a, wasn't a shared ownership because a, a friend of mine actually set up. She's from here, but she was living in Bangladesh, and her husband's an architect over there, and. She set up an interior design company, but she basically just approached uh, prostitutes on the street and said, look, I'm going to employ you and I'm going to give you a share of the company. And uh, and that's how she sort of grew her company. And she said she wanted to keep completely complete, um, make it completely flat and just give, you know, all of the share. But there was always a hierarchy there. So people who are not from, you know, who are completely from the destitute um marginalized communities they they wouldn't necessarily treat everyone in the same way so it's it is quite hard to break uh i guess like a sort of a caste system yes yes i to be honest i cannot speak to that because um i don't know how they address that all i can say is that they were um working with the poor in the um rural areas um uh and they they went to social spaces that kind of hadn't um, uh, been um, entered into before. For example, you know they they brought women um, into realms where they handled money, and that just wasn't a thing. But they worked with the they did that in a way that um, was really working with. They didn't do anything to the communities, so there was a real deep respect there for people. And um, there was another organisation called BRAC. There still is. Wasn't an enterprise model. It was more a kind of civil society organisation that um, did just give money to extremely poor people. It was like it's kind of like modern day living, basic um, um, income for people. Uh, so that, that's for the ultra poor, the ones that were just not in a state to even con contemplate enterprise. They helped the ultra poor, but they. They changed the conditions in Bangladesh in times of disaster. They were, they grew to be extremely trusted as an organisation um, to resolve problems in Bangladesh. So I, I really looked to those two organisations who were quite different, um, yep. but both had um, um, real solutions to bring, and they were both um, led with a lot of integrity. Um, and so we we'll end up being quite inspirational stories.
it's always always quite uh you know it can be very jaded that there are sort of there's nobody with integrity in business so when you come across those people it's like okay it can be done yes that's that's, that's real leadership isn't it yes it really is um yes i could say a lot more about it but um you know i'm happy to flow in this conversation the direction you want this to flow so how did that uh so all that you know that kind of experience and of seeing it on the ground as well <clears throat> that's the other thing you can read all the reports and you can see all the, all the awards but you don't really know until you actually see it in in action um how has that affected or impacted the way you deal with uh you're part of or you've been helping an alternative dao would you is that how you'd call it yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so I just, I'm going to fill in a couple of little gaps. I then experimented. So, you know, I, I, I did this project London Creative Labs in London, which was applying lots of principles that I'd seen active in, with, in how... Oh, was that the one you got low, um, quite, a, you know, really good funding, actually, from JP Morgan? Yes. <laughs> JP Morgan got the idea right away, whereas the local council, it took a lot, t- lot longer for them to sort of see why and w- what we were doing. Um, and they end up, they were supportive in principle, but what, they didn't end up funding any of it. Um, but so it was slightly frustrating that it was this huge corporate um, that could immediately get the um, the vision behind it and um, and didn't really need much explaining. In fact, they said, look, come to Canary Wharf in 48 hours. They gave us um, a significant amount of funding. <laughs> um, in fact, they got frustrated with us because they asked, how much do you want? And I said, oh, well, how about 15 grand for this little program? And they kind of, they looked at us and said, look, um, I'm, we're not asking for you for part of it. Like how much to fund all of it? I nearly fell off my chair because I just wasn't used to organizations getting how it worked as a whole but they did how much, do you want to say you got for that funding so um, 150k to do the fund the program as a whole which for us was a huge amount you know when we're not asking for 10 grand here 15 grand here um, 250k so they decided no, 150 sorry 150 from your pitch within 48 hours that's amazing yeah. Yes, yes. And what was also fantastic was they effectively let us define it. So they said, yes, these are your outcomes, but we could update them as we went along. Um, The only thing, one thing they said to us was, you must put 8K aside for um, uh, accounting um, when they verify it at the end, auditing, that's right. And um, they said, you won't want to. And we said, we don't want to, we want to spend this money on the program. And they said, you will thank us later. And honestly, we we, we are very thankful that we have a properly audited project. So yeah. that was very useful. Well, it's good to show for more funding that, you know. Yeah, and also to articulate why things worked and to, we've got the data behind it, you know, with the social we really, really were very careful to show that you can measure social things if you want to. Yeah. This, this is a problem. When I've worked in, um, you know, the sustainable fashion world, people are asked, well, how do you measure the impact? And it is, re- you know, there are like PhDs on it. It's, it's actually very difficult. I, I, my, my view is that there are some really sensible things to measure that you are going to want to know because otherwise, to a certain extent, what is one doing? You know, yeah. you, you, you're trying to make a difference in a community, for example. There has to be a, a place in your brain where you're thinking, what's the specific thing that I'm aiming for, that we're aiming for, and how are we going to know? How are we when we get when we're exhausted in six months' time? When we're you know, there's all sorts of things going on. We're dealing with staff issues, whatever. 
we we've got to know what we're trying to do and that has to be clear because then you know what you're trying to measure at least and then you can get you can ask for support you can ask for help you can look at other project to see how they've measured things and it didn't take us long once we had that we wanted to know um you know that there were some hard um measures that we wanted to track um but you know, I mean, social enterprise was about creating skills it was it was it was actually how you create wealth in a community but you know that how do the community themselves participate in creating wealth for that community and you know the 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 theory of change that, that we put that we um arrived at was that um jobs that the wealth is created by locally organically driven startups and that's what we fostered but we wanted to ensure that the people who were involved in creating them were not all the usual suspects nothing wrong with the usual suspects but we wanted others who had been excluded to participate so we had to do a deliberate intervention to um, enable people to participate meaningfully that hadn't before and that so quite a, part, a bit of our budget was used for that and then they came on board and were part of this wealth creation and as a result the community was a lot richer and other uh, um, organizations in the community said that they had found it hard to reach the some excluded groups but there had been an influx of people from our programs to their programs that were people who'd been through this process felt more able to participate and were ready to be active in the community so there were lots of layers that came out of this work because because having learned from what Grameen did um, and also you know having learned from others that were very active in doing work around living systems where they really built project around living systems um, and this comes back to this philosophies of Francisco Varela and the work of Otto Sharma um, uh, and who were looking at global stuck tough problems and looking to apply living systems to those problems so I mean you know we were applying these things in ways that felt sensible to us but it's really coming back to that thing of um, why are we doing this and you know what's the simplest way of looking at this and um and how can we keep it integrated because it's easy to get overwhelmed you know when there are lots of so many different elements to doing any social change work um so, what I, so I think it's interesting with your uh alternative dao disco is that yeah. how you think? yeah okay because we were talking about how you put the rules in the code and everyone can have a share of it but it, how is that? A, it's not a living system. Fundamentally, it does. So yes, you carry on. You, you you're. Yeah. So if you so this, there's a tension between the DAOs, the distributed autonomous organisations, and um, uh, DISCOs, which is distributed cooperatives. And these are distributed cooperatives that can exist on the on the chain on the blockchain. Um, they don't have to because they ultimately DISCOs are a set of principles and um, they can be applied in different jurisdictions in different ways and that's up to the members and that this is the point that the aim with DAOs is in a way to not need trust between humans you know to create trustless systems and people get excited because oh you know we don't have to trust other people other people are difficult and actually machines uh, in many ways are more reliable so we can have these um, these DAOs and and that will remove a lot of the unnecessary work that we have to do nowadays which is inefficient and stressful discos on the other hand say well we 
we don't want to remove that human element that is difficult. We can do this. We can find ways to trust each other. And so we can also work um, with some trustless architecture. So we'll use some systems to codify processes that it is good for machines to do. And we as humans, though, won't let go of those reins. We ultimately, the buck stops with us and it, it, and it stops with us in small groups. There are small groups of us that, that you know, will together need to garden these systems. Um, so, so long in that way, those systems will serve our collective purpose because um, otherwise you will get whatever, what, you know, anything that you're not tracking, you're not keeping an eye on, will it will you know, it's your guess is, is, is as good as mine, what will have, what will evolve, especially with complex systems? <laughs> yeah, I do think, um, you know, a lot of work around technology is, is just not neutral. And I think that's the basis I come from. And it's, it's sort of, it's a, lot of, a lot of the time it's in contra contradiction to what other people think. You know, that's the reason it's chosen, because it is neutral, but it's so not, because it's, it's not written by you know it's, it's it's kind of controlled and written and created by such a a small slice of society yeah absolutely and you know i think that's now um beyond doubt as in you know there's been there's been enough research to show that there is bias in our codified systems and that's there's nothing in essence wrong with that it's because we are all of us humans do have blind spots. Um, we just have to be not, not pretend that they don't. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we have to be aware. Yeah, and um, so it's our role to do that, to do that checking and 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 managing, and um, uh, just really respecting that. Ultimately, if we know that we together as a system system of human beings we are living systems and living systems follow certain principles in nature and then we're not then um we're not then deluded as to the fact that we've got control on certain processes that we just can't ever we can as 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 um Friedrich Krapper said you know you can disturb a living system you can't control it you can disturb it um but you know we can we can it doesn't mean that everything has to be chaos we can um cultivate chaos in balance with order you know, that's ideally, that's what we're trying, that's what nature does. New things come out of a very good balance between order and chaos. But I think now, just sorry, yeah. forward to the, uh, the sort of evolutionary potential, which would be lost if you took out the interaction between, you know, of the, of the living system. If that was completely eradicated because now everything runs super efficiently because it's, you know, spearheaded by uh, a codified system, mm -hmm. um, technologically codified then it's like i quite like the you, you kind of need the friction you kind of need a little bit of conflict yes the thing is that um you know those predatory algorithms the in the in um this speculative industries and the the algorithms that um i mean i remember being very frightened when i heard about the fact that basically nobody really understood in the end what they were doing you know they got to a level of complexity that that we just it was very difficult to predict and i think you know as we do get better and better machine learning we will start to have you know more and more genuine artificial intelligence and um i think we just i mean the the healthier relationship healthier the relationship that we have with machines the better you know i i, I do think we can have runaway scenarios and so the more that we equip 
more of us to not be frightened of machines, but to learn how to work with machines. Um, you know, because in machines are so much cleverer of us in some dimensions and are also very stupid still. Um, uh, you know, I, we've all heard of stories where machine will say, for example, a robot will sort of in a science fiction story come around to collect the debt of a dead person. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are, there are, you'll probably be familiar in image processing how we're still not there yet in training machines to just recognize um, visual cues and they can get ma like massive mis mi errors in judgment. Um, so we still need that, the human. Uh, so with, with everything that you've learned, I think the other, you know, you've kind of, you do a lot of conflict resolution as well, as you were saying, yeah. but uh, with online moderation as well. You've been doing it for a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the online moderation is still very limited by the technology that we have. So mostly it involves helping organizations to realize at what point you must take the conflict resolving offline. If, you know, as and when we get better technology, it will be able to facilitate the resolving of conflicts um, um, in a better way. Uh, but at the moment, it's very limited. I mean, well, I think, you know, the sort of the social interactions are sort of set up to heighten conflict. Yeah, I mean, we're dealing with that. So any conflict resolution is at, um, you know, a handicap straight away anyway. Yeah. Was, yeah, exactly. Of you know, social media and the algorithms that hack our um, neuro, you know, our, our brains basically in, in many ways just bring out the worst values in us. <laughs> yeah, um, so that makes it a lot more difficult. It makes it more difficult to code. It makes it more difficult for humans to manage, to even understand, to get the head around why things are happening. It's difficult enough in in you know in groups where you've got people present, um, but not but not having the visual cues etc. When conflicts start emerging online, you know accelerates. Uh, conflict beyond the carrying capacity of that group. I really like that term, carrying capacity. You know, what does that mean? It means every living system has a carrying capacity for something. So, uh, for heat, but you know, it can be for physical um, principles. Um, if you imagine like heat capacity, what's heat capacity? It's it's how much heat a certain um, um, uh, mass. Um, can be a, be a chemical engineer. She didn't mention that. <laughs> well, that was our together at uni that's how we met <laughs> um but you know in the end i get became really interested in living systems and um so the carrying capacity is is um you can understand that in social systems for conflict would be the it's really at what point will a group just not be able to hand it doesn't have the capacity in-house to handle a certain level of tension or certain topics or com at levels of conflict and you'll just see the group erupt and often split up into smaller groups where actually that can be a good thing because then they settle and they're at least able to manage that local level of conflict until the time when maybe those groups can coalesce again or not um but that's just yes yeah. i was just going to say do you think this sort of I mean, the carrying capacity, that should be like a, a factor coded in because I'm, I'm just sure, you know, there's enough data in even individually that you can you can see when someone's getting upset and you're like, OK, there, there's a, that's that's enough. That is the threshold. 
I think if we had um, um, machines, well, little, little chips, I don't mean anything. Um, I, I only mean, I mean, I actually do have one. <laughs> I, I ordered a Kickstarter of um, this, the chip that you can strap to your arm. It just reads a bit of bio data. Um, I haven't done anything with it, but the idea was that you, you if you could start to sense when you ha your emotions were uh, starting. It's the gas skin response, yeah. isn't it? The GSR stress yeah. Exactly. So that if you could t keep a tab on that in a group, um, that would be data you could use and say, hey, listen, there's a heightened tension. What would you like to do? It could offer you prompts. It could all, it could already prepare spaces where conflicts could start to be resolved. Um, I think a lot of semantics are, um, semantic engineering is really at that point where it's starting to be useful. It's starting to say, you seem to be thinking about this. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the GSR is used in lie detection. Tech. Sorry, the, the um, sensor is used for lie detection as well because that causes right. I didn't know that. That's that's yeah. That so that's... it's quite. It'd be quite an interesting thing to to carry around. And and I find you know having worked in wearables for a while is that you need sort of two points of data, like body data, to to yeah. get accuracy as well. But then if you've got your you know, seeing how you're reacting to things online or what things you're looking at. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I mean, I mean the, you know, it, it, some applications could can actively tell you your language is becoming more, you know, yeah. and I think there are, are one or two apps. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm hallucinating, but I, I think that has been developed. Some. I think, for example, there are apps that tell you, are you sure you want to drunk text this person? <laughs> You know, that will prevent you from, or, or at least offer you um, to rethink <laughs> your text. Um, but it's all really primitive, uh, you know, um, considering what we'd need in actual fact to this feasible. I do feel like the more sort of intimate health data being, you know, as soon as it's sort of being monitored, it's so vulnerable to control. Yep, yep. I mean, I, all I can say is yes. <laughs> uh, that's a huge issue, isn't it? You know, privacy and our, our data. It's it, if there could be an intermediately level in the app that says um, not the not the right time to have this conversation, but it maybe not would say why wouldn't share. You know, the, the um, your actual state, but would just give it a, a green light or a red light. That could be. You know, there could be some sort of inter um, that doesn't impart the actual data, but really yeah. good. Yeah, they don't need to know the meta of the green or the or the red. Mm -hmm. Yes or a no. Mm -hmm. Also, the other thing is that um, this sort of work needs funding, as in mediation, facilitation, conflict yeah. is very, very intense work. So people often say, oh, conflict resolution, that, that's, you're very brave, that's difficult work. And I, I think it's not so, it's more that it is, work that you would do for a little time and then you really need to recover well so long as you recover well it's not really different to anything else but if we don't realize that we'll then be surprised why it seems to burn people out faster than other things and it does need a little right. laughing but like you're kind of yeah trying to detoxify aren't you but you're sort of absorbing yeah poison. yeah it is i mean it becomes quite physical even it, it needs a level of um somatic um awareness you you know you, you know if your body is tense you will argue in a different way and there's just no doubt about that whatsoever um so 
and that's when you're less likely to notice that you're tense is when you're arguing. So it's these, it it's the Olympic standard in our communications, and therefore it needs it that needs to be respected to a certain extent. Um, and what happens is moderators burn out too quickly, and and therefore it becomes a sort of role that no one wants to touch. You know, um, a lot of people study conflict in theory, but when conflict breaks out, it's often overwhelming um, because there isn't the support there that they do actually need. Um, you know, it should be a team of people helping a team resolve a conflict. If you've just got one person, it's um, it may not be sustainable. Can I just, um, and also you're an Aikido black belt. How found the things you learned sort of in, you know, in sort of physical combat and conflict is helpful? I, 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 it's hard to say this because it sounds so strange, but I really wouldn't be this, I'm not the same person that started beforehand in the sense that, you know, the process has made me um, feel confident about certain types of conversation and um, also re, um, um, understand what I don't know as well in the sense that if I don't practice certain skills, I will be out of practice and I won't be surprised then that, I don't perform so well. Um, so it's it's helped me get that sort of real base of archetypal understanding of difficult conversations, the physiology of it, that is so determining in what we then think. Um, Just a, a response to that. I think, you know, sort of the training I did, I never realised that actually the, the self-defence and that combat and conflict uh, uh, training kind of affected me the most deeply on a, on a psychological level. And I don't know if it's because being a short woman walking around the streets of London, I had a fear that I didn't like an innate fear. And all of a sudden that didn't disappear, but it was like completely different. Yeah. And you just don't, you don't even know you're carrying it. And, and because you're carrying it, you react to things in a very different way compared to once you have the knowledge that, you know, you can do a Spock shock or whatever, or, you, you know, you, you kind of like see things differently after you've learned that training. Yeah, because, I mean, and you came to do Aikido, I know. So you, you yeah, and we, we, we practice in the same dojo. And I mean, I, it, for me, it comes down to the fact that, I mean, many martial arts, depending on the teacher, are really, they, they're aiming to improve human relations. It's not about fighting. It's about resolving conflicts in a constructive way. Many martial arts are. are yeah, and in um, fact, a lot of yeah. the, um, um, self-defense, if you're small, there's no way you can, you can fight a six-foot guy, okay? There's no way you can do it. But what you can do is use their, use their uh, weight and force against them with very little movements. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had, I mean, I, I feel, I feel very lucky because my teacher would always talk about saying, you know, saying, let's, um, that what did he say? He said, loving attack and joyful reconciliation. And he would uphold the idea of we're not there, for example, to teach anyone a lesson. We're not there to, even that language of using the thing against them, that is where it started. But but the where it actually went was actually let's leave the attacker in a better state than they were before. So we redirect their energy and we, 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 
Yeah, we give them somewhere to move and, and give them a dignified way out of the situation as much as we possibly can. I mean, massive caveat, because as he said, you know, if, if someone is is you know absolutely bent on hurting you you might not be able to protect them you know you will do their best but your best but if they come at you with um very aggressive energy and you simply redirect their energy they will go in a different way with that same energy which if it's a lot will you know send them on their way you know intensely um because you don't want to you want to de-escalate a situation yeah. that, that's the whole point exactly and it's so uplifting. It really, when you have a physical experience of de-escalating someone that's much bigger than you, and you know, you both both end up looking better for it. Um, it's a very, very uplifting, empowering feeling. So I think for say, say for us in a in a sort of physical world, if the situation escalated, we'd actually wouldn't survive it. So the only way out, uh, a lot of the time, is de-escalating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's also, it was also very beautiful because it was about learning to respond in the moment. <laughs> so people would often say to my teacher, um, what would you do in this situation if someone came at you this way? And my teacher would always say, no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Because he, they, we've, we, we train, as he would say, to move in an intelligent way, meaning moving with the body and um, uh, blending with the opponent. And, and then we would trust our Aikido so that that was also quite empowering you don't need to know what you'll do what you can yeah. is that you've practiced and if you practice you can trust that that was very um uh simplifying in a way it just simplified things do your practice <laughs> it was great yeah that's really good so um uh the other thing I was gonna say was you have been how long how many years have you been on in second life for um i think i think it's actually 15 years now oh my goodness i i was at a conference in sweden on collaboration and someone spoke about the metaverse and um i don't know that they use that term but they talked about oh, well we did used to use that term <laughs> before um, they should have patented it they should have trademarked it but... i know yes yeah <laughs> I'm now never sure whether to use it, but we did use that term anyway. I, but people talked about this space online that you could, that was, you know, a world that you can build anything. And we explored it as a space for collaboration where we could just meet and be in inspiring settings and have meetings in nicer environments. That's how it started off. Um, and we should sort of have meetings exploring different places, teleporting here and there. And it was, it was fun. I mean, it started off just as a fun thing to do. Um, but then, you know, you could see how it would enable people who were um, less a physically able to participate uh, in conversations. And also it would help us to um, explore that 3D space. And that would have had a strong effect if you felt immersed in that 3D environment. I, yeah, yeah, I do yeah. I mean, 3D space is here. Um, you know, a lot of people like the next generation coming up are just it's just normal for them. Um, and they interact with their friends on it from, you know, you know, my daughter has been since she was like four years old or whatever. Yeah. Uh, your nieces as well. Um, they're constantly that's 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 part of their life anyway. So whether we want it or not, it's they're already trained. That's what they yeah. expect. 
Yes, and they, I mean, I was always, you know, techno, the opposite, um, techno friend, um, I love technology, um, but uh, my nieces, who, my niece was seven, we, you know, went into Roblox with her, and she'd managed to, there are the, in one, in Roblox, this, the, which is the child's online 3D environment, you know, for children, yeah. Um, and there, there, you have um, a lot of mini games that you go into and you can play. And uh, there is one type of mini game called, they call it obbies, but there is, it comes from obstacle. So they're basically huge obstacle courses. And you see their little avatars just bouncing, bouncing all over the place. It's really quite entertaining. And could I get that bouncing right? Absolutely not. And I had this moment where my seven-year-old niece said, um, auntie, you need to believe in your little inner self. And I, I just, I, I, I couldn't believe that she was saying that because, um, you know, this was just like, wow, um, um, this is a different generation, a very different generation. She has that standing. Like showing me an avatar she'd created for Roblox. And she's like, oh, yeah, my pet rock that I wear on my head. It's so cute. What the hell is <laughs> friends are showing her everybody her pet rock on her head like look at my cute pet rock <laughs> so i i really relate and they often introduce me as their auntie with their friends there and i feel slightly like i'm a second class citizen in that sense because they're much better at me at the mechanics of the game i mean they've played out hours they've you know they spent a lot of hours in it so i tell my daughter playing with her friend online for like I think it must have been like six hours. I'm like, oh my god, it was. Um, I think it was during COVID, and we were trying to, you know, keep them entertained. But yeah, they, you know, you have to like unplug them, otherwise they won't stop. Yeah, and they, you know, these are digital natives. They've never known a world in which we didn't have that immediate intimacy with others available on tap like we do now. Um, so it's. It's really difficult, and um, for me, I, I, I think I don't know how to understand that. You know, I don't know how to understand a world in which that's always been there. That's something that I will never really get my head around. We can't, can we? Because yeah, mm. but at mm. the same time, there are a lot of um, you know moderation problems, a lot of like weirdos online, uh, a lot of fraud. That's like all of that's gone up because it, it's not controlled uh, properly at the moment. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a bit scary. I, I was quite impressed, actually, because I sent a message to my niece. And, my, you know, my sister was very happy that I was there with them because she, she said, oh, they'll be safer with you. So I messaged one of my nieces, hello, darling, something, something. And the message was blocked because I'd used the word darling. I, I, the, I couldn't. And I thought that's excellent because it's protecting kids from... Yeah being effectively targeted and grouped. Um, so I, I, I was actually very happy to see that, even though it was a bit odd. <laughs> I couldn't message my nieces in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. But don't you find, um, I don't know, but with kids, they have more than one device on when they're playing in 3D World. So they'll play, use one computer for 3D World and another device to communicate. Yes, yes, that's right, because they'll be on Messenger. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Chatting with their cousin, actually. And, or, or seeing, or, um, yeah, uh, FaceTiming so they can see them. Exactly. Yeah. Which circumvents some other uh, dangers. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had more time around them because I, and you have time around your daughter because I think we, we, lear we learn. So you can see 
the children are kind of like inside out versions of, of the learning process, aren't they? You can see what they're learning and, and their views. And um, I think it's like a little lab laboratory on how tech's changing. And also they're leading the tech because they don't mm. telling them, you know, they don't follow the rules. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I d what, one thing that I don't like about Roblox is just how the, it commercialized the model is. I mean, the kids are asked to spend money every moment they turn around in Roblox. And um, yeah, that's a bit intrusive. And I didn't experience that, for example, in the metaverse that I've spent time in. That's really not there. It's not based on the advertising model. But you have to, for Second Life, you said that you, you would uh, subscribe to a space on a monthly basis. But I didn't have to, and I didn't do that for seven years. Right. So I never had a house in Second Life. Um, I didn't even have shoes. <laughs> it was a silly little thing, but you know, I didn't see the point of shoes. I didn't see the point of staircases. I mean, what's the point? You're in a 3D world. But anyway, um, these the, everyone has their different experiences of crossing that boundary and thinking, what's the point of this? So some people will try to create exact replicas of um, cities, of houses in the metaverse, and others will try to play with the physics and change completely differently the experience. And both are really quite entertaining in different ways. Um, yeah. Over the years, though, because with the you know advent of um, new spatial environments and VR spatial environments in the last few like couple of years or whatever, have you seen people do things differently in Second Life? Yes, I have. So initially, the avatars were not very nice looking. They were just you know like odd hands, a bit like you know Lego men, and they yeah. have the hands that are clamps well they were human hands looking a little bit like that and then you got upgrades you got upgrades and they became they now look more perfect than you know humans and so what's happened is that it's kind of been an arm beauty race you know there's like an arm race in beauty in the second life and I don't want to judge it because it can feel great to suddenly be an avatar that is beyond amazing. You know, it can feel fun, especially if you don't have that experience in real life. It, why not? But it can also be uh, it have problems of its own. You know, all the avatars are giant and there's no one less than seven foot high. So if you are your own height, it's like... You look <laughs> Another thing that's changed has been that the level of living the experience has has gone down. Um, there are a lot more. There's a lot more activity of taking pictures of avatars posing in Second Life, for example, and then sharing them on Flickr. So it's you know it's, it's like people have created a mini Instagram of imagery of that world, as opposed to living in it and having experience in it sort of playing inside it, role-playing games, etc. I mean, there still are role-playing games, yeah. but, but there's, it's more gone towards, hey, look at the images that I'm creating, which are a form of art and really are amazing. And there are- I mean, you do that on, you know, holiday. So I, you, you kind of, whatever environment you do these days, you want to show that you were there. Yeah, yes. Um, but I mean, I've had, you know comments because i i really like the the experience of immersing and um you know moving around as your avatar fly i love flying around exploring different places you know landing you know riding a dragon and and just picking a random spot on the map and then teleporting there and just seeing all the different things that people have built and the beautiful thing about second life is it is one one continu continuous environment oh, so yeah. you can 
fly from one end right to the other and it would take hours and hours or you can go sailing etc whereas in most other metaverses it's not that it's sharded environments so my niece and i might meet in a game and realize we're in a different instance of the game so you have to log log back in to try and parent such a hassle i guess it's um yeah it's more efficient in some ways to do it i'm surprised second life managed to do it all, all the way back then when you had a lot more users um as I well. mean, second life is one of those legacy ones that were very idealistic and very maverick um i mean now a lot of their tech is you know it's legacy it's slow it's clunky but you can still do things there like that that they haven't achieved in other metaverses um it's you know it takes a lot it's it solves a lot of problems um uh not to do that uh you have to going Sorry? so many companies like that have disappeared and mm. of yeah you know it's got the hardcore users so we've only got eight more minutes this has gone really quickly so yeah we were roommates but we, we do we do we talk about the partying that we did why not why not <laughs> <laughs> those are the days those are the days Such yeah of experimenting and that experience i mean i don't know what element you wanted like you know i'm happy to <laughs> um what secrets do we want to spill <laughs> no secrets don't say anything um entertainments um f did you ever go to festivals i spent a lot of time at my university when i was i had quite a lot of challenges in the middle of it and i ended up getting involved with entertainments and that was something that i dove into and that was fantastic um what about you what was something that drew you while you were there that was perhaps outside the studies um sorry i was just having a think mm. um, yeah just i think i tried a lot of fashion stuff do you remember i used to like customize clothes all the time oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Time, like what the hell are you wearing um, and it was great because we were science students i'm sorry <laughs> we were students um if we wore anything that looked interesting it stood out so we were you know it's ended yeah. up being a fashion icon just because you didn't wear jeans and a t-shirt but then the Royal College of Arts students were next door and um, they were the cool ones, weren't they? <laughs> they were the cool ones. Because like the biggest department at Imperial at the time was physics, wasn't it? So uh, we just those physicists the whole time. Um, but yeah, that was that was funny. But don't you, sorry, just one like at, at the union, they'd be like Jamiroquai played. Do you remember that one time Jamiroquai played? And I went upstairs into the other rooms because I was trying to find somebody. And I'm not joking. I opened a door and there was just a whole load of people playing, doing role playing games. And they all stared at me. <laughs> Do you remember I was playing downstairs? They're like, get out, get out, shut the door, leave us alone. <laughs> That's hilarious. I wish I'd known actually about the role playing communities at the time. I just didn't know much about. It. I discovered all of that later in life. I really wish I had known about about them at the time because, yeah, um, yeah, I, I would have loved to get involved then. <laughs> I confess. <Cool. laughs> yeah. So I think we're running out of time, but um, it was really fun to talk to you. And you actually just lived down the road from me in Clapham, but I'm in Scotland right now. Um, so. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely sort of journey on these all these different. You've put the ideas forward about where to um, follow in the conversation. I've loved it. So thank you. Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Sophia.